The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joe Biden is a pretty powerful guy, but in Washington, D.C., there's another powerful Joe hanging around. Today on Parts Per Billion, we talk about the West Virginia senator who is the other Joe I'm referring to, and we learn what this Joe's constituents in his fossil fuel-friendly state want him to do on climate change. Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to Parts Per Billion, the environmental podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So if you think back to last year, around September or October, back when there were projections, Democrats would rack up huge majorities in Congress in the elections. Some people, this podcast included, were talking about all the climate policies this new Democratic-dominated Congress would enact. Obviously, that did not happen. Democrats controlled the Senate by the mathematically smallest margin possible, and in the House, their advantage isn't that much bigger. So that means, since every vote is crucial, the most conservative members of the Democratic caucus really, really matter. And there aren't many Democrats more conservative than Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. So that means that any big climate bills probably need to get past Manchin to get to the president's desk. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, the other senator from West Virginia, Republican Shelley Moore Capito, is now the top Republican on the Senate's Environment Committee. So clearly, West Virginia, a state nearly synonymous with coal, is going to have a huge amount of power over environmental legislation through this year and next. Bloomberg government's Kelly Lunny just wrote a great story for our Business Week magazine about all of this and about what West Virginians want their powerful senators to do. She says, actually, the outlook for climate hawks might not be as bad as you would think. I think they're both very cognizant of their power. Um, And let's, let's not forget that There are only 100 senators, and they all have a lot of power because it only takes one to (laughs) gum up the works. (laughs) But, um, yes, Senator Manchin is exceedingly powerful. I think he has said publicly, you know, he finds himself in this position sort of serendipitously in some respects um, and that he intends to to use the power that he has to enact legislation that he feels is bipartisan. Um, and I think um, Senator Capito is also someone who, you know, she's been there for a little while. She has carved out a niche for herself on on different issues, including environment and transportation and infrastructure. And I think the two of them are very seasoned politicians, but they also recognize that their power and their influence um, and and the positions that the two of them find themselves in right now together are really advantageous to their home state, um, which, you know, has not has not always gotten the attention or the resources that it needs. Yeah. And let's talk about that. Um, You know, I get the sense that I don't think it would be unfair to say that both Senator Manchin and Senator Capito are pro fossil fuel and specifically pro-coal. Would that be accurate? And 
If so, I mean, what does that mean for the future of climate legislation in the next couple of years? Well, I think that the two of them are obviously from a, a very traditional fossil fuel producing state. Coal has been king in West Virginia for a very long time, generations. Um, of course, they're not the only state uh, in the union that um, produces a lot of fossil fuel energy. Uh, but they, like many others, they recognize that the market is really driving a lot of the conversation right now around cleaner energy and that this transition is happening whether people like it or not because of, of, of economics more so than government intervention or political ideology. And so I think the two of them are, you know, prag- pragmatic legislators. I think, you know, they are not of um, extreme ideological bents. I think they want to work with their colleagues to get legislation done. You know, that doesn't mean they're going to sign on um, and endorse a Green New Deal anytime soon or ever. But I think they also recognize that um, there needs to be a balance there. Um, They're certainly going to advocate for the needs of their state. And I think um, they, like others, recognize that that fossil fuels are not necessarily going anywhere anytime soon. They're going to be part of that transition. It's not like flipping a switch and you know, tomorrow we're all driving um, EVs and having solar panels in our on our house. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I have to imagine, though, that climate activists in particular must be seeing the situation as it is now in Congress. And, you know, it must be pretty despairing for them because, I mean, Joe Manchin basically has a one-man veto over, like, any legislation in the Senate. Not exactly, but almost. Um, Is there any hope of like big, you know, maybe not Green New Deal level, but big climate legislation passing in this Congress? I think that it depends on how you would define big climate legislation. Um, You know, I think somebody from the Sunrise Movement might have a different definition of that versus, you know, even someone like a Senator Carper or, um, or a Senator Manchin. You know, for example, last year when the Senate passed the energy package. There were was language in there about reducing hydrofluorocarbons. And these these are the chemicals that are are in uh, our refrigerants that are really really you know potent uh, greenhouse gases. Yes, and and members of both parties were um, very they they made a lot of effort to get this across the finish line because it it helps industry too. It helps the the industry that that makes those products in our country compete on a global stage. But, you know, a lot of people believe that that was very significant climate legislation. Um, it doesn't necessarily get the headlines of a Green New Deal, but it, it still is, is significant. Um, the Senate recently passed a resolution to reinstate an Obama-era rule on methane emission reductions. Um, if the House passes that, gets signed into law, that could have a significant impact too. So I think that, you know, you're going to hear people make the case that some of these, quote, incremental changes add up to a collective big deal and that not everything has to sort of be this grand proclamation piece of legislation that everybody comes together on and, and it gets passed in a dramatic fashion. A lot, of, a lot of work gets done incrementally over time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And, you know, another thing we should really briefly mention is carbon capture. Uh, that's something that I think, you know, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, um, are really favor if they're from a fossil fuel dependent state like West Virginia, because this is technology that would allow, uh, you know, coal fired power plants to operate with fewer greenhouse gas emissions. I get the sense that not all environmental activists love this, though, right? That's that's true. A lot of them don't. A lot of them feel like there's problems even with that because there could be leakages and it's it's. You know, the, the technology isn't necessarily where it needs to be to be completely, you know, foolproof and efficient. But, you know, by the same token, it, you have to think about it as, as one of the tools in the toolbox, if you will, to try to reduce emissions. And it is something that Democrats and Republicans, you know, pretty much agree on. And that's where, at least now, a lot of the investments, a lot of the money that Congress is putting into um, energy efficiency, that's, a, that's where a lot of it is going because it is about research, technology, development. Um, and it's, you know, it's a way to get at reducing these emissions that is, you know, isn't as disruptive as shutting down, you know, a coal plant. <laughs> right. So finally, sort of closing things out, you know, one of the things that I liked about your story is that you went to West Virginia, um, you know, for the story, and you talked to a lot of folks, and you got some great quotes um, from the state. And I got the sense that the view about the coal industry and the future the coal industry has is very different there now than it was four years ago when Trump, uh, you know, first took office. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just got the sense there was like a resignation that, you know, if Trump can't bring this back, no one can. That that was the the takeaway that I got from your story. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. Uh, you know, I would preface my comments with that I was in one part of West Virginia. I was in southern West Virginia um, in the Beckley area near New River Gorge, which was just named a national park late last year. And sorry to interrupt. I should say I have also been there, um, not for reporting, uh, not for business, but for pleasure. Uh, and it is a lovely part of the country. Everyone should visit. I would recommend it. It is beautiful. Um but yes, there is a sense that, you know, coal is not going to be the force that it was that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that people are running around saying coal is dead and, you know, we're ready to move on to the next chapter. Um, but I think that the fact that Trump said he was going to bring back beautiful, clean coal and he tried to do that and he tried to, you know, help the, the coal companies out and that industry out and it didn't work because, you know, this is an industry that market forces have been disrupting and has been in decline for years. It's really at this point beyond sort of any one politician's um, powers. So I think that people recognize that. And I think, um, you know, there was there's also sort of a sense of a little bit of resentment and hurt feelings um, that are left over from the Obama era and the clean power plan and, you know, some of the that administration's rhetoric around 
clean energy and fossil fuel uh, communities and you know people in West Virginia have have a, some of them have a very negative feeling about how they were treated and how they felt that they were not part of a transition to another economy and that they were left behind. And I think that's why you see President Biden, his administration, this was included in his jobs plan. He's had separate fact sheets and other announcements about just transition, including coal communities, revitalizing coal country. You've seen a lot of, of attention paid to that because they are cognizant of the fact that that is that is a problem for them, that they have to communicate, that not just communicate, but really put their money where their mouth is and help people, you know, who are willing to transition to a new job and and new skills, but they can't, you know, they can't do it on their own. They need help and they need to, you know, they need to have um, an administration and a roadmap to do that in a way that's going to be able to allow them to live their lives the way they've been living them. And it sounds like uh, the you know two senators from West Virginia, with their uh, you know, uh, with all the power that they have now in Congress, are going to try to make that happen. But it, uh, that could you know slow things down for uh, some of the big kind of uh, you know epoch making climate legislation that I think a lot of people had had hoped would would finally come. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair assessment. You know, like any senator or really any representative in in Congress. They care about their constituents, they care about their state, and um, they are in a position to really to really help their state, especially at a time when um, they are in, you know, sort of an economic and cultural at a cr- crossroads. So that's always going to be at the fore- forefront of their, of their minds as they legislate um, on these types of policies. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Kelly Lunny uh, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Kelly with uh, Bloomberg Government, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me, David. That's it for today's episode of Parts Per Billion. If you want more environmental news, check us out on Twitter. We use the handle at environment. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in Benadryl. Today's episode of Parts for Billion was produced by myself, David Schultz. Parts for Billion was created by Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, and I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.